From the University of Colorado Boulder and the Rocky Mountains, this is See You at the Libraries, where information becomes knowledge through storytelling. I'm Lynn Roberts, Education and Ethnic Studies Librarian. I'm Arthur Aguilera, Collection Assessment Librarian. And I'm Deborah Hollis, the Librarian Archivist. Back in June, we were part of a team who put together an anti-racism resources guide in response to the violent death of George Floyd and other Black people during recent incidents of police brutality across the country. It includes multimedia recommendations, teaching assets, community action information, links to campus groups and information about campus-wide initiatives. Working on this guide required us to look at systemic widespread violence against Black people in this country. The topic of discussion amongst library and information professionals, and many of us know, was long overdue. This year, the American Library Association said that, quote, while libraries are nonpartisan, they are not indifferent, unquote. On this episode of See You at the Libraries, we are going to explore what the statement means through the lens of our anti-racism resources guide. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll stay with us. So I kind of want to pose this question of where did the idea for this guide come from and then punt to you, Arthur, if that sounds good. Yeah, so the idea for the Anti-Racism Resources Guide really came out as a reaction to just everything that was happening seemingly like all at once. We were facing constant coverage of the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and other deaths that keep occurring over and over and over again. And finally, with the pandemic and everybody being isolated and, you know, tensions that have erupted in our country, I think everybody in the libraries was feeling compelled to react. And really, the guide was that reaction to wanting to be there for our community, wanting to express that we were here, we were listening, and just allowing ourselves to be human in this moment in the country, in our profession, and to provide support for, for the people who needed it. I totally agree. This is kind of what we do as library and information science folks. When there's a crisis, when there's something going on, we want to provide resources and information. And the fact that we didn't already have something like this. I will always remember this summer as the 21st century realization of the impact of Emmett Till's horrific killing. And this is what George Floyd's assassination, in effect, was for the country. It was a reckoning. It was videotaped. It was raw. It made it very apparent that at a predominantly white institution, having a resource guide of this kind, it stood out even more. Internally and across campus, I would say we needed some points to jump off of, and shared reading was one way of beginning awkward conversations. At the peak, we had about maybe like 14 people working on the guide at the same time. And I think not only were we experiencing raw emotions and reactions to what was happening nationally and locally, but we were recognizing that we ourselves failed in a way. Even though like the guy came together really quickly, it definitely was a testament to how quickly we had to acknowledge our shortcomings, acknowledge what we had left to learn, and acknowledge that we weren't going to be experts overnight, and that this was always going to be an ongoing fluid guide that shifted with the conversations happening on campus and the conversations happening within the libraries. This was also, I think, a project that's signaling a shift 
at least in the time I've worked at the university libraries, where different departments, different units have done more one-off projects in the past. In the time I've been here, like I've worked with a couple different people on African-American or Black History Month displays before. I know many other people have done these sort of one-off things, but I don't know that we've had a culture in the libraries of having this kind of cross-unit collaboration in quite this way, especially in such a short time frame. So I think we were also trying to build that capacity to react together. I would add to that the culture of higher ed is a passive culture, and because these recorded incidents were shared instantaneously. We needed an outlet to process the reaction, the grief, the horror, and we needed to have some kind of group coming together to process what we as a community were watching unfold. This past summer, no one could look away from what happened, as no one should look away. But the guide also points out that there's a history of this. This cannot keep going on, that there are many amazing resources, past and present, and we subscribe to a lot of these resources. We were thinking more along the lines of how can we create a resource that is timely in the moment, but also a springboard for future discussions and conversations. And so one of the ways that we tried to address that is reaching out to our community, asking what should be on this guide. And so we built that into the guide itself where people can go into the guide and submit a recommendation. And then those recommendations are available for other people to review. So more of a resource for the community, by the community. As collaborators from the guide, you know, what challenges came up for you? So for me, I wanted to provide resources to students, you know, the community at large for You know, if you see something on campus, how would you hold CU police accountable? That turned out to be a challenge for me because I have to admit, I made the assumption that, sure, other people would sign on and think that that was a perfectly acceptable resource to include in the guide. And frankly, it surprised me that there was pushback on that. And I can see it now, in hindsight, how other colleagues took issue with providing resources that if someone was guilty of bad or unprofessional behavior, how could a community trust going to the community that is participating in bad behavior and report something that someone should be held accountable for? It just makes that point that we have shared values oftentimes. We want this police brutality to stop. We want our organizations to engage much more actively in anti-racism resource work, and we may have different ideas of how to get there. I think there's a tension between how do we make sure we have a variety of perspectives represented on a project like this. I think that's really important. And also, in order to move forward and be responsive, Sometimes a few people need to come together and make decisions or do the bulk of the work together. And that's always tricky to navigate. It takes a lot of bravery on behalf of individuals to put yourself out there and to advocate for something that you feel very strongly in, especially during a time when emotions were already high. In the profession, a lot of those voices have always been highlighting inequities in our systems and our structure, and they've often been ignored. And this is a time to acknowledge that. So how do you feel the resource guide was received? So we got a lot of great feedback, but we also, you know, got some not so great feedback. The challenges that we got back were related to, you know, what is the role of the libraries? Like, is the libraries pushing a 
narrative that we normally haven't publicly and aggressively walked through before. You know, we moved away from traditional resource guides related to specific academic disciplines or courses into how do we talk to each other. I don't believe that we were coming from a very political stance at all. We're coming from a humane stance, a stance of empathy, and a stance of creating an environment where people are welcome. I think this would be a good transition to thinking about what the role of libraries is and the idea of libraries and neutrality, that complicated question. I'll start by just saying the ALA statement we shared in the intro, while libraries are nonpartisan, they are not indifferent, really irritates me. I think that we've used that as a cop-out for decades in this country in librarianship, and only more recently are we realizing the harm of that silence or that illusion of neutrality that really we're not neutral. We all have our lenses, we all have our backgrounds, and so much of that profession, those lenses are from a white dominant paradigm. When you take the language that's being used at any point in the 20th or 21st century, and then you overlay it with the demographics of the profession, people can say one thing, but the fact that the demographics have been slow to change within academic libraries and archives. Is it changing? Yes, it is. But throughout the course of library history, You know, it started with ALA recognizing that once you let communities of color come into the library, because that's in our history as well, then people who look like the community should staff those branch libraries. And that was in the public library sphere. I think for a lot of younger librarians, we're taught that social justice is important and that libraries are not neutral. And so it's interesting to get into the profession and then see such a disconnect between our education and sort of the practical experiences that we have. In order for that to change, it really does require each institution to reflect about their core values. In many ways, this guide was that starting point for our institution to realize that we can't wait for other groups. We have to do this work ourselves. I have been on this campus for quite a while, and in all my years, we've tiptoed around these kinds of discussion topics. I am very grateful that We're coming together and we're open to having the awkward conversation and recognizing that so much work still has to be done. This is a process of capacity building where, you know, we have to start from where we are. We had to have some of these initial awkward conversations within our small group. And now I think we're seeing it growing to the larger libraries. I'm also thinking about the importance of it's really valuable when our leaders are on board with this work and when they're helping contribute to these conversations happening in our organization. And I think there's a huge role for more of a grassroots movement of our staff and faculty within the library saying this is important to us. We want to be doing this work. We want to be having these conversations. And ideally, the leadership and the grassroots sort of meet in the middle. I think through this whole process also, as a library community, people are recognizing what systemic racism looks like. So we have these amazing collections and resources, again, from a very passive point of view. But when we look at our faculty, the library personnel, it still reflects the dominant culture. Now, I have always argued that we have other communities buried within archival collections, and they just haven't been recognized or noticed. So we don't need to do the mad scramble that you know archives across the country are doing. We need to go about that thoughtfully, working with members of those communities to convince them that this is a good place to deposit organizational papers or personal papers. 
Let me ask you both this. Do anti-racism resource guides disrupt the idea that libraries are nonpartisan? You always say, well, we're an R1 institution and our collections support the centers of excellence on our campus. So libraries have always been nimble enough to sort of deflect and be able to dodge the RB partisan. No, we're actually just supporting what's being taught on campus. And actually, that's nonsense. But the interesting thing about libraries is when you ask across communities, across racial and ethnic groups, people have fond memories of libraries as, for the most part, safe spaces in their childhood. I have many fond memories of going to the library as a child with my mother, who was a natural citizen, and we all went and we checked out books to, you know, learn English together and whatnot. Yeah, I, I appreciate so much of what you shared. I think it's that idea that these decisions are made by people who work in the libraries and that us is so predominantly white on a predominantly white campus. I think it's also important to name that while libraries have these wonderful qualities promoting democracy and welcoming all, there have been many documented instances of Black students and other students of color having security called on them when they are legitimately in the library studying, having their identities and their purpose as questioned, as well as being shushed by library staff. And from my perspective, having an anti-racist resource guide, part of what makes it valuable is the conversations I think we need to have inside the libraries, talking about this history and talking about how we're going to intentionally shift it. I think there is no such thing as being nonpartisan if you're a person of color, if you are part of the LGBTQ community. Essentially, if you are in one of those categories, I think politics do run your lives. The idea of libraries being nonpartisan has always like struck me as odd because, you know, libraries are the place to leave all of the constrictions that have been placed upon you by society really at the door. I think about the inscription over the front doors of Northern Library, he who only knows his own generation remains always a child, has inspired me since the day I set foot on this campus. I can't think of a more non-political message than that. Whether the libraries are partisan or not, libraries always make a choice. So maybe partisan, non-partisan isn't like the right terminology to describe what libraries actually do. Me, I have one foot in the 20th century and one in the 21st century, and I I'm slightly jaded, but I'm always hopeful. You know, I hope this isn't once things settle down and we go back to meeting in person again, that we just slide back into old behaviors and old ways of doing things. I feel like this whole experience has given us a very good means of really contemplating how what we do impacts our students. Because for me, it's always about the students and it's always about how do we support them with the kinds of collections that they have at their disposal. When I reflect on like where academic libraries go from here. What I'm hoping is that individual libraries will start doing more work internally and individual libraries will start focusing on what works for them and their community members. I see that happening in our libraries, especially in our sort of mission of creating a information empowered world, thinking about how that is such like an individualistic question that can really be processed person to person. From your point of view, Linz, what do you think about the question of where do academic libraries go from here? Yeah, I think three things come to me. One is absolutely the hiring through retention and the climate issues inside academic libraries. So we can start to really shift the needle on who is working in libraries and who is making these decisions. 
I also think transparency is going to continue to be very important. I like that we made recommendations publicly available, but I think that idea of transparency needs to be throughout the work that we do in our organization. And the third thing I think is really an emphasis on relationships, that how we do the work is often more important than the outcomes and having the work not be transactional, but relational, building trust over time slowly. Well, Linz and Deb, this has been incredible. And I just wanted to say thank you so much for really having this conversation. Thank you all. This was a very cool experience. I thank you both as well. Claire Woodcock produced this episode. Mark Losey is our editor. Student Nikhil Thapa composed our theme music. Check out our other episodes wherever you get your favorite podcasts. While you're there, leave us a rating and a review. I'm Linz Roberts. I'm Arthur Aguilera. And I'm Deborah Hollis. We can't wait to see you at the libraries.